Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a culture that loves money and values everyone's input, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is a bitter pill. Human speech, cries the preacher, is the sacrifice of idiots, and the gathering of wealth a grievous evil under the sun. Let your words be few. Shun the acquisition of wealth. Delight in your work and in the few years that God has given you. Sleep on an empty stomach. Fear God and trust in His judgment, even when faced with injustice, for even an oppressor in the palm of God's hand brings advantage to the land. I would pay real money to see Hollywood try to package that message in a movie trailer. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 75 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we continue our discussion of Ecclesiastes moving on to chapter 5. In the past episode, we talked a lot about oppressor and oppressed and about power and how people flock to it, but there's no point. That labor in itself has no point other than making yourself rich, which has no point. But really the companionship and communion with other people is what gives life any meaning or at the least less misery. Misery loves company. Ecclesiastes said it first, I guess. So now we're going to continue and talk about how the preacher tries to instill the life that we're stuck with with some kind of meaning or happiness or pleasure. We'll see if he gets there or not. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. And you mentioned before the critique of religion. Here we have it explicit. It's better not to offer sacrifice because if you don't learn the lesson, then it's going to be a bad sacrifice anyway. Foolishness in people who are continuing to commit their pious acts is just adding foolishness upon foolishness. Well, and I can't help but think of the crucifixion and the last words of Jesus on the cross. When I read verse 1 of chapter 5, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen, in other words, to hear instruction, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The crucifixion in the New Testament is the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I mean, my mind works by way of analogy. And I think it's important for our listening audience to understand that I'm not saying that Ecclesiastes is talking about the crucifixion. I'm not saying that Ecclesiastes is talking about Paul's teaching. I'm saying that it actually works in reverse. The texts in the New Testament refer back to this tradition. And even if Paul isn't talking about these verses... The point is, we are working within the context of the same tradition as Paul and the New Testament authors. And so it's fair to talk about these texts 
and how these ideas are manifested in the New Testament, even when a New Testament text isn't specifically quoting the text in question. Scholars tend to pin themselves down to try and prove that Paul was reading this verse when he said this and so forth. That's true and valid and important work, but there's a broader context in which Paul, meaning the school of writers in the New Testament, were people who had memorized the entire Torah, were people who could recite it by heart when they walked through the marketplace or, you know, went to do their labor in the field or whatever it is that they did to support themselves in the world. These are people for whom scripture was a part of their fiber and their being. So it may be that in certain cases they're referring to one specific text or one specific theme because they were ingenious authors, but all of these ideas are interconnected. And I think that's how the tradition works. We need to remember that this text permeated people. And if you understand people who are in a preliterate society, people who don't know how to read and write, they're memorizing all the time. I lived in Morocco, and the language that people speak on a day-to-day basis is not written. And so I saw many times where the father would tell an eight-year-old boy, go to the market And he would recite the grocery list. There's no written grocery list. Get these things. And then he would give the boy money. But because he was afraid the boy was going to get cheated by the market or keep the change or something like that, he had in mind how much it was all going to cost. Then when the boy would come back, the boy would get punished if he didn't get the whole list correctly. He was expected to memorize it on one reading. And the father still remembered the list that he told the boy and how much it should have cost. This is in the 1990s I saw this happen. This is just the amount of memorization that people are used to doing. So that you would have a text being read over and over that was considered holy, naturally you would commit large portions to memory. Which means that the text becomes systematic and comprehensive in the mind of the biblical writer of the New Testament. And I want to stress, we're not talking about an oral tradition. That's not what we're talking about here, about sitting down at the campfire and telling stories and embellishing them or passing on by word of mouth what people saw. That's all a bunch of malarkey. We are talking about a text. Whether it is committed to memorization or committed to paper, it's a text. It's very, very critical that we understand this. So again, that's how you have to read the Bible. So when I'm looking at verse 1 and saying, oh, this is interesting. This is a theme that the crucifixion seems to draw on. I'm saying this with a basic assumption that from Genesis to Revelation, we have one book. There are many books, but it forms one book. We've talked about intertextuality. Well, they call it intertextuality in scholarship because they imagine that the Bible is a collection of separate books that should be read together. But I like to use the word intratextuality because I view it all as one text, and so it's looking within to interpret itself. For listeners who feel like we may be getting off track here, then this is tangential. I want everyone to understand that what Father and I are trying to do is we're trying to lay out our assumptions about what it means to read the Bible as literature. To read the Bible as literature is to take seriously how someone reads the Bible, even within the Bible itself. And we have plenty of scientific studies that show that this is happening, that you see authors drawing from different parts of Scripture, or you can say it's all one text, however you want to do it, but that there is clearly a connection among texts. And so what we're talking about here is how do we see those? Where do we see those? What does one line trigger in our mind about another text? If it triggers our mind, 
Would it trigger the mind of somebody else? Probably. We're not those who would have the whole thing memorized. There are people who do for which these triggers would be much easier to sense. So even though this discussion may seem tangential, I want everyone to understand this is essential for understanding what it means to read the Bible as literature. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Anytime you have a vow, anytime you say, by God, by God's witness, with God as my witness, maybe you don't want God as your witness. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So we have this dream and trying to establish a dream, or we have visions in a dream, and the voice of a fool with all kinds of crazy ideas, it's a lot of words. And we've already seen work itself produces very little, but how much less a dream and a bunch of words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. So if you do insist on saying by God, with God as my witness, do the thing. Don't delay, for he takes no delight in fools. You are a fool if you wait to pay. Oh, but I've got a very good reason. No, there's not a very good reason. Just do the thing. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Which is what he's saying in the very beginning of the section, which is, look, just keep your mouth shut. No one will fault you for silence. No one's going to hold you accountable for promising nothing. It's better to keep your mouth shut than to remember that in the presence of God who is in the heavens, you who are taken from the ground should understand that the minute you open your mouth, you're on shaky ground because your perspective is so narrow. Remember, God sets eternity in man's heart, but man can't grasp eternity. That's the thing that's at work here. So shut up. It's like the old proverb, better to keep your mouth shut and let people think that you're a fool than open your mouth and prove them correct. Exactly. Don't let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Why get God riled up? Why not just keep your mouth shut rather than say, oh, but you have to see I had a great plan. I was going to do this thing uh, enough I'm taking that thing away from you that you were working on because this is not working out, That's, I'm afraid. This is why a fatherless society like ours, we are a fatherless nation as modern individuals. We can't understand this text because we don't fear our parents. We say whatever the heck we want to whomever we want to say it, and we give no regard to consequence. Exactly. But when you understand that God is not your buddy, when you understand that he's not your personal friend or your lover or the person who hovers over you all day while you go about your mundane, irrelevant life. Or your psychoanalyst who wants to hear about your dreams and about your words and your plans, all you, that sort of thing. When you understand that God is an Iranian father who sits on his rear end in judgment and who doesn't speak unless he's pissed and has something harsh for you, when you understand that, you realize the best thing to do is to bow your head to the Lord and keep your mouth shut. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. And don't forget what we were talking about in the first few chapters. Fearing God is knowing that you must bow down to what God has placed in front of you because you yourself are going to be consigned to the grave. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. So if you get upset because you see 
injustice, don't worry, there's someone whose job it is to deal with that injustice. There's a chain of command, and that's why God loves the centurion in Matthew, because the centurion, who never read one page of the Torah, understood that Jesus was a man under authority with people under his authority. There is a chain of command. The centurion fulfills this verse because he wasn't worried. He trusted the chain of command. What the preacher is saying here isn't that you should trust the king. He's saying it doesn't matter. Even if the king is a moron, God holds everything in the palm of his hand. And who are you to question it, you who are from the earth? Who are you to question God in the heavens? How can the clay address the potter? That's what he's saying. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. This echoes what Paul says about the human authorities, that human authorities are there for order. You know, even if you have bad police, it's better to have bad police than no police at all. If you have a king, he's going to benefit you as a farmer better than having no king at all. Exactly, but don't worship him. Don't imagine anything about his value under the sun. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. So this is typical we hear in a lot of wisdom literature, money doesn't buy happiness. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. And definitely we see that in America. You know, As people become rich, we have more people buying stuff that they don't need. And the result is that California is overpopulated and now doesn't have enough water to go around. California has prospered. It's become the land of extreme wealth. But to what end? When I was reading a news article this morning about the wealthy in California arguing that because they pay more taxes, they should have more privileges with respect to water rationing. And I thought of Ecclesiastes. Because even if their extra money can buy them more water for a time, eventually there'll be no water. And you won't be able to buy more water than the poor man. And you'll meet the same end. So it's this illusion, again, of capitalism this illusion that the economies keep growing and that there's enough prosperity and wealth for everybody is a lie. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? As more people enjoy the increase, the people who were rich to begin with can only look at other people consuming the stuff that they wanted to have for themselves. But the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. And I think this can be understood both in a literal and a figurative sense. It's easier to eat a little bit and go to sleep than to fill your stomach and go to sleep. But you're going to be sick. The ancient Greeks used to talk about this a lot, about how eating too much was going to keep you from sleeping well. So there's something about that. We all know in this country we have a lot of people who eat a lot and then they get acid reflux and can't sleep and it makes them miserable. With respect to the obesity crisis in the modern West, it's not just about plenty. That's only part of the story, because man has complicated the problem with his ingenuity, because it is the technology that we apply to the manufacture of food that makes food less healthy. So we've used the work of our own hands to compound the problem so that even someone who eats a little, if they eat something highly processed, it has the same effect is eating a lot. Again, it all goes back to this chasing after prosperity and chasing after abundance. The solution to hunger is not to engineer food and manufacture it on a large scale, which is what is killing us and killing the land. The solution is to share and to eat less. 
the sleep of the working man is pleasant. He worked, he did his thing, he goes to sleep. But the rich man is always having to worry about getting more because just a minute ago, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He's not going to be satisfied. So the poor man who doesn't eat very much and is satisfied can sleep. The rich man who has plenty but is not satisfied can't sleep. It's not about having enough or not having enough. It's about thinking you have enough versus thinking you don't have enough. That's what's going to ruin your sleep. It's about a decision to either accept or reject fate, to accept or to reject providence, to accept or to reject what God has provided. Remember that in Genesis, Isaac was the child of the promise. And as someone pointed out to us recently in a sermon, all Isaac did was sit on his rear end. This is not Genesis endorsing laziness. This is Genesis endorsing our acquiescence to providence, which in the story is manifest in the will of Isaac's father, Abraham, and in the will of God. Isaac was obedient. When you don't acquiesce to providence, when you don't accept fate in the palm of God's hand, that's when you become a fool who strives after the wind. That's the dynamic here. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owners to his own hurt. Whenever those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. So you hoarded all this money and it was lost. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And we have this proverb in English, you can't take it with you. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? There he just lays it out. Again, what it's is, a recurring theme. Exactly. What is the point of busting your hump to make a ton of money? You're going to die the same way you were born. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. You're making yourself miserable over trying to make all this money. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. This goes back to what we were saying about chapter 4 and how at least if you toil, do it in a way that it's enjoyable. Do it with somebody else. Sleep with somebody else. Keep you warm. Work with somebody else. Then he can pick you up when you're feeling weak. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. For this is the gift of God. When you work, you get something from it. God gives you something from it. Enjoy that. Just as the poor man ate and he slept. Eat your produce and sleep and rejoice in that. If you can make enjoyment from your work, that's the only way you can do it. But the only enjoyment is not a dream or words or promises or riches or toil it's being with a companion it's being with someone else it's that communion for he will not often consider the years of his life because god keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart you're not going to be sad if god gives you enough you enjoy it in the company of friends you'll have happy times eating and drinking with other people and then you'll die the same way you were born. Now, we break these texts up into chapters as a matter of convenience, but more than any other text that we've ever read on this podcast, if you take any verse in Ecclesiastes out of context of the whole, it's extremely misleading. Because here, the preacher seems to be saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which was the profession of the gladiators in the arena. But that's not what he's saying in context of the whole book. 
he's saying that God's gift to you, should you choose to accept your fate, is enjoyment under the sun, Enjoy- even in oppression. Enjoying what you have. Contentment and thanksgiving. It's different. It's not saying let's party. That's not what he's saying here because someone who's an American would hear this and say, okay, we're going to die anyway, so why shouldn't we buy big houses in the suburbs? Why shouldn't we go out to restaurants every day? Why shouldn't we maintain our privacy at the expense of fellowship when we're going to die anyways? That's not what he's saying. And I want to leave our listeners with this very important point. Challenge yourself to try to hear what the preacher is saying and not what you want to hear. It reminds me of that book, Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love, because that's an immigrant family who comes to the U.S., and they're musicians, they love music, but as they become more and more famous, their emotional and physical health start to disintegrate. I mean, we know that this exists even in our modern world. We see it. Like you said, Father, contentment with what you have and enjoying what's there in front of you, that's what's most important. Not striving to get more. Oh, if I can enjoy this dinner, well, if I can have double the amount, then I'll be even doubly happy. No, that's not how it is. Be completely happy with what's in front of you. Don't go worrying about all these other things that are happening and the king is doing this and the president's doing that and politics this and justice that. Wars and rumors of wars. We need to be happy with what we have because I'm going to die. Those people who are oppressed are going to die and those oppressors are going to die. And ultimately, they're going to go to another authority that is not me. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Take care. heard the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network